Welcome to Seeds of Science, a podcast by UHN trainees and postdoctoral researchers showcasing how today's junior researchers are growing in their scientific fields. Over this podcast series, you will hear from a wide range of trainees and postdoctoral researchers across the seven UHN research sites. My name is Emily. I'm your host for this week's episode. Today, I talk to Dr. Emma Bell, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the Daniel D. Carvalho Lab at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Emma's research centers around the development of liquid biopsies for the early detection of gynecological cancers. Whilst they fall in and out of love with academia on an almost weekly basis, they are sure of one thing, that they'll dedicate their career to improving health outcomes for women, non-binary, trans, and intersex people. During my conversation with Emma, I was struck by their openness to share their research challenges and the immense personal growth that they have experienced throughout their scientific career so far. From struggling in their masters to perform basic bench work, but later finding a love of coding and manipulating data, Emma's story will likely resonate with many trainees who love science, but aren't quite sure if they're in the right lab or field. Emma has a great sense of humor, and so I think you'll all enjoy this episode. So thank you so much, Emma, for coming in today. Just to get started, could you give us a little introduction about what stage of research you're in and what lab you're currently training in? Sure. Uh, So my name is Emma Bell. I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. My research interest is gynaecologic health and female health more widely. My area of research specifically is epigenetics and gynaecologic cancer, specifically liquid biopsy to improve diagnosis times for ovarian and endometrial cancer. Okay, fantastic. Um, And how did you get into this area of study in the first place? I did my PhD in developmental biology. I then transitioned to a one-year postdoc in ovarian cancer, and I was invited to interview out here um, for actually not the DeCarvalho lab, a a different lab uh, within the Princess Margaret uh, Cancer Center. And when I got here, I just absolutely loved it. I loved like like the atmosphere was electric. There were all these extraordinarily intelligent people who were passionate about research and all this activity, like being being in this hub, like with all of these research institutions in, this, in, in the one place. It was like, it was delightful. Um, so I lost out uh, on that job. Um, but <laughs> then uh, I had a friend who was working in the DeCarvalho lab and was like, oh, so we're recruiting for a bioinformatician. So I applied and I joined the DeCarvalho lab to do cancer epigenetics. It was 2019 when I got here. That was first year of postdoc. And there was a, there was a pandemic that got in the way a little bit. So I got a, a one-year extension on my, on my postdoc. So I am currently year five. Fantastic. Okay. So in your current research project, you're using liquid biopsies to improve diagnosis times for endometrial and ovarian cancers. Could you break this down for us and explain the benefits of liquid biopsy over traditional tissue biopsies? Yes. So gold standard tissue biopsy comes with risks of infection, pain, and bleeding to the patient. But for a lot of conditions, say ovarian carcinoma, the only way that you can diagnose uh, definitively is through tissue biopsy. There are lots of people who undergo that process who turn out not to have ovarian cancer. A good screening tool, a good diagnostic minimizes that, that number of people because as a result of that intervention, you are going to have caused these individuals physical harm. 
Liquid biopsy is the idea that you can take a bodily fluid, be that blood, saliva, urine, etc., cerebrospinal fluid, whatever, and look for indications of the condition that you're, you're concerned the patient might have that are reflected in their complement of cell-free DNA. My PI, Daniel DiCarvalo, came up with this method called cell-free methylated DNA immunoprecipitation. So your cells are constantly, through, through just normal biological processes, releasing bits of DNA. That also applies to tumor cells. Now, because tumor cells have a very specific pattern of DNA methylation, where DNA methylation is enriched. If you take an antibody um, for 5-methylcytosine, which is the DNA methylation modification, you can take that needle in a haystack and you can make that haystack smaller because you're enriching for just the stuff that's methylated and circulating tumor DNA is going to be more methylated than average. Okay, that's really interesting. And so when you identify particular enriched DNA methylation in the bodily fluids, is this a marker of specific types of cancers or is it a marker of cancer in general? All of the above. So the delightful thing about DNA methylation and the epigenome generally is that it is specific to cell type. Every every cell has a particular pattern of gene expression, a particular complement of, of proteins. So the specificity in the epigenome you can use to differentiate between tumors from closely related cell types, tumors that are sensitive or resistant to certain chemotherapies, tumors that are pre and post treatment. So this seems like a very sensitive technique then, yes. um, which I guess is part of the reason that it's so attractive for diagnostic purposes, because it's a screening tool has to be sensitive, but also specific. Yes. Although I will say um, this is all theoretical at this point. We're not doing this in clinic. This technique was first published by the DeCavallo and Bratman Labs in 2018. Okay, so um, it's very, very recent then. Yeah, it'll be the five-year anniversary by the time this podcast comes out. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> A lot of what we're doing right now is building very sophisticated machine learning models to identify, well, to demonstrate that we can differentiate various conditions using cell-free meetup data. We cannot apply those machine learning models in clinic because they are black boxes. As in, you put data in, something interesting comes out, you've no idea what happened in the middle. You don't know what's driving a machine learning model. Like in theory, liquid biopsy and CF meetup is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I do very much believe in it. But there's an awful lot of questions that need to be answered and development that needs to be done before it actually sees patients. And I'm looking forward to to us seeing the answers to some of those questions. So in your postdoc, I believe you're a bioinformatician, is that right? Yes, that's right. So could you describe for us what a bioinformatician does and maybe give an example of how it relates to your line of research? I define bioinformatics as biology in combination with any two of the following. So mathematics, statistics, information engineering, machine learning. My flavor of bioinformatics is biology in combination with statistics and information engineering. Information engineering just refers to like organizing data, cleaning data, structuring data nicely, putting, putting it into nice orderly piles. 
And what that means in my line of work is DNA sequencing data, RNA sequencing data, sequencing data of all flavors. If you can sequence it, I can make a graph out of it. And so just briefly, what do you mean by sequencing data? When I talk about sequencing, I'm referring to divining the the base pair sequence of fragments of DNA. Okay. And so how did you become a bioinformatician in the first place? And I guess, do you have any advice for students who might wish to become bioinformaticians? So I'm self-taught. I I started off wet lab. So, okay, well, really. Okay. So it's 2004. And I'm obsessed with CSI. I am a a product of the CSI effect because CSI was the first example of the practical applications of science that you can help people, like you can problem solve, you can, you can understand the world better using the principles of biology. Even though obviously like in hindsight, like they don't balance the centrifuges for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> um, it's not, it's not good, but the, the, the point is like the spirit of the thing. And yeah, I had no idea what that really meant. I was like 14 years old and I, I decided I'm going to be a genetics researcher. But when I got to my master's, it became pretty obvious that I was not suited to lab work. And I now realize that that is because I had undiagnosed ADHD, which meant that I wasn't stupid or lazy. And that's that's not why I couldn't keep track of the colorless liquids I was pipetting from one tube to another in teeny tiny increments. It's because my brain is not, it's not set up for that. If you know what it is set up for? Coding. <laughs> Real good at that. Like it just like, it's like a duck to water when I discovered that. Fantastic. Um, Did you discover that in your master's? Yes. So the way that my master's was structured, it was the, M, the master's of research in biomedical research at Imperial College London. It was 2013. I had long hair. I, I don't. I've got, a, I've got a, I've had a pixie crop ever since. And it looks weird. That's not the point. That's not why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, you, don't, you don't want me in the lab. I am no good at that. I will drop things. I will forget that I have put something in a place and then I'll come back to it later and then the DNA will be destroyed. That sort of thing. Was this a, a hard realization for you? at the time? At the time, I didn't understand why I couldn't do it. And I internalized a lot of like self-hatred around that, which had a negative impact on my mental health. And then, yeah, during early stages of the pandemic, when I was working from home, that thing that my colleague said a couple of years ago, which is, hmm, maybe you have ADHD. And I entirely dismissed because my image of what ADHD is, is a eight-year-old boy disrupting a class. Yeah, it t- turned out that was, that was incorrect. And it is a very different presentation in, in female patients. And it is often undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, yeah, at the time, like during my PhD, this was all a negative. It was like, I can't be a scientist. But now I, I realize that, no, I just, my brain works in a different way. And that the skill set that that provides me works perfectly with the career path that I've landed on. I am incredibly fortunate that I was able to do my second master's project with Dr. Ed Curry, who is a bioinformatician, that I learned R and it was it was an uphill battle. 
Um, I'd never, like, I, I made a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan page in HTML4 in 2002. Mm. <laughs> but besides that, I'd never coded before. So it was, it was tough. You were sort of thrown in the deep end. Yes. But my brain likes that. And that, that approach worked really well for me. It might not work for everybody, but I do think that generally, if you want to learn R, if you want to learn any programming language, if you want to learn principles of bioinformatics, go find some data that you want to analyze. And there's so much publicly available sequencing data. It doesn't even have to be like biological data or like national statistics organizations releasing census data and other stuff all the time and you you can just go look at it and you can play with it and you can make graphs and you can learn how to manipulate data in r and you can ask questions of the world and it's so much fun and yeah just yeah for me the key was finding something that i was really enthusiastic about and then applying myself to it because then it was easy as opposed to the lab work which was grueling and yeah i love my job and i am good at it yeah i can i can tell both of those things just from <laughs> talking to you So Emma, you mentioned that your primary interests are gynecologic health and female health care more widely. Could you expand on this? Uh, do you see your career focusing on these issues? Yes. Both of those areas are under-researched and underfunded. And when we do research female health, it's reproduction. But the thing is that people carry those organs their entire lives and health concerns can arise outside of that nine-month window. and Something like endometriosis, it's it's bizarre that there's so little we can do about it and it's so difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. I feel like there should be better options for endometriosis patients at this point than pain management or a hysterectomy. That doesn't mean that reproductive health research isn't important. It is critically important. But at the same time, I do think it tells us something about the patriarchal legacy of of these institutions. Mm -hmm. And do you see yourself always pursuing this as a career path? So my career goal is to improve health outcomes for women, non-binary, trans people and intersex people, because the people who have these organs deserve health care. And right now, they don't necessarily get it when they go to the doctor. And that's absurd in 2023. Yes, absolutely. We have a long way to go with this. Um, do you see yourself pursuing these issues still within the academic setting or do you see yourself, I guess, moving outside of academia and uh, following this passion that you have uh, in another way? I love the work that I do. I think the research program that is slowly taking shape in my mind could positively impact female healthcare could improve people's quality of life. And I want to build towards that. But I don't know whether academia is going to let me do that. We have an endemic mental health crisis, endemic bullying harassment um, issue that is primarily comes from supervisors and PIs. It's a recent nature study. Look it up. PhD researchers and postdocs are the backbone of academia. They are the people who actually carry out the work in the lab or on the computer. And yet we value them so little. 
Absolutely. I know UHN has taken positive steps to try and recognize the value of postdocs by setting new minimum salaries and things like that, but there is still a long way to go for academia in general. But along this journey, have you found any mentors who have helped to inspire you or to keep you motivated along the way? Definitely. Right after I joined Princess Margaret, this person I followed on Twitter reached out to me, and that is Sam Wilson. And I don't know if I would have been able to map out the path that I am on right now if I hadn't met Sam, because like neither of us know what we're doing, but Sam had a plan. And what I learned from that experience is if you are a marginalized person in academia, you need to go and find people who understand your experience and can support you. The other, other people I should mention, actually, Stephanie LaRue has championed me at various points. The other person is Layson at the University of Toronto. Oh, and Laura Dubow, despite having absolutely nothing to do with my research area, has had a huge influence on convincing me that I can become a leader. I'm not there yet, but I, I can do it. And I don't, I think there are lots of things that people have done for me that probably didn't really mean anything to them at the time that had a huge influence on me. And a lot of that is just them showing up. Yeah, that's that's fantastic and really speaks to the value and importance of mentors in academia. But I'm sure that people would say the same thing about you as well. Yeah. I my friend PhD student in the adjacent lab, Lauren, once said that she looked up to me and I was like, why? I wear my underwear inside out way more often than an adult should. <laughs> like, what are you seeing here? I don't I don't get it. But um, okay, I guess I better stop messing around and like become a serious scientist or something. Okay. But yeah, hearing that, it showed me that I matter. The things I say and the research uh, that, I, that I pursue and the way that I interact with people, they have an impact on the people around me. And that can be a positive impact or it can be a negative impact. And I'm hoping that it's, I'm working towards it being a positive impact hopefully more more than a negative i'm sure it's always a positive impact yes and so emma i was wondering if there's a recent accomplishment that you've had that you are really proud of so i didn't actually work out what i wanted to do in research until the pandemic came along and what I concluded was that I want to pursue female health equity. And then when I, re when I decided that I was going to pursue gynecologic oncology research with a view to expanding beyond that, I started applying for grants and fellowships and anything. I applied for anything and everything because I was trying to be strategic about building my CV. And I got rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, if I heard back at all. And then this year, I started winning things. Like all of those rejections, they started to pay off. I started to learn how to write. And I won the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research's Rising Star Award earlier this year. That is fantastic. That was really exciting for me. And I'm, I'm really proud of that because I think it demonstrates to myself that I am going in the right direction. Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank you. It's like, even if I don't have faith in myself all the time, other people do, which is a good feeling. 
I got to give a lecture and I got to pay off my credit card with the $2,000 um, that came with it. Thank you, OICR. My bank's very appreciative. I also got onto the Women in Media Fellowship. It's an initiative between Enterprise Canada and Women Who Lead to take healthcare researchers, clinicians, and other women and non-binary people in the in the field of healthcare and train them to effectively communicate in the media, which I think is an incredibly important skill. And I think it's something that I wanted to develop. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. You really are training to become a, a future leader in female healthcare. That's, that's awesome. So Emma, just to get to know you a bit more, um, something I'd love to ask you is what you like doing outside of your research. Well, I am the butler to a very demanding corgi. Corgis are by default demanding. It is their nature. She's pretty cute, even when she's being a proper um, disgruntled creature. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I do follow you on Twitter um, and I've seen pictures of Sophie and I must say it's up there as some of my favorite Twitter content. Oh, there's a weird thing. So in 2020, I I quote tweeted Elon Musk correcting him on a point about rapid antigen tests because if you're a an influential person with a large social media following, it's a little irresponsible to share misinformation and conspiracy theories to your your audience. And uh, yeah, that ticked me off. And I used the term space Karen in that tweet. I did not come up with that term. That Somebody else came up with that term like several months prior. But what happened was I accidentally popularized the term because my tweet went viral. And so we, we started out with a tweet that got like 90 K likes or whatever. Oh, wow. And then it was being reported in like newspapers around the world because it was trending internationally. The phrase Space Karen sort of entered the, um, well, it's it's got a page on Know Your Meme. It's a thing people say now. And I, I played a very small accidental role in that. I mean, I, I guess you had no idea this would ever happen. No, I just, I used Twitter to like talk to other scientists and I mean, I share share pictures of I was I was fostering a cat at the time. Um, Star Trek memes. I am slightly concerned that because I I mocked the very rich man who has the very thin skin, and as did some other people, I may have inadvertently, sort of accidentally, just the teeniest tiniest bit contributed to him buying Twitter, which I did quite like Twitter before he started to dismantle it. All right, Emma. So before we wrap up, I'd like to do some rapid fire questions with you. Uh, You haven't seen these before and a couple are new since season one. So the idea is that I will give you two options uh, and then I'd like you to pick one as quickly as you can. Okay. Okay. Cake or pie? Uh, pie. Invisibility or super strength? Invisibility. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Uh, morning person. Do you prefer spring or fall? Ooh, um, autumn. Would you rather spend money on a dream home or travel the world? Travel the world. Do you prefer indoor or outdoor activities? Uh, indoor. 
If you were an animal, what would you be? Oh, God. Platypus. Oh, nice. Any reason why? I just like them. I did um I did an evolutionary biology um module during my undergraduate degree and I studied monotreme reproduction. Just monotremes are platypuses and echidnas and just the first draft of mammal. It's very different from the second and third drafts. <laughs> and you just some strange things happened. <laughs> Um, this is a bit of an odd one. Uh, what would you say is your favorite pair of shoes that you own? My Doc Martens, although um, I want them resold with Vibram soles because uh, the soles that come with Doc Martens are not very durable. Um, my ASMR YouTube channels started being infiltrated with people who repair shoes. Oh. Um, so now I know a little bit about boot repair. Wow, amazing. And I'm less enamored with my Doc Martens. <laughs> this is the sort of answer. I'm just so glad that I asked this question. And one final question, uh, tropical island holiday or backcountry camping adventure? Tropical island holiday because in this country um, you have predators, uh, whereas in the UK we um, rather tragically but conveniently killed all of those, which means that you can go in the very few places that you can go wild camping in the UK, nothing is going to kill you. Whereas here, you got bears. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're talking about the bears in Canada because people here always tell me that in Australia, everything's trying to kill you. But I always have to remind them that at least we don't have bears. Well, Australia is just like, it's off the table entirely. Okay, this is now going in the wrong direction. <laughs> I'll go to Sydney and I'll go to Melbourne because Australian friends have told me that like, if you're in a city, you're fine. <laughs> it's true. So Emma, thank you so much for coming in today. It has been a true pleasure to talk to you and to hear about your story and your personal and research challenges and also how you've overcome them. I have no doubt that whichever direction you end up going in, you are going to be incredibly successful at uh, achieving your goal of improving female health outcomes. I think we're really lucky to have have somebody like you who is so passionate about this field uh, and these issues that uh, that you've described. And I'm really excited to see where you go next on your journey to becoming a leader in this field. No, thank you for having me. It's It's just fun getting to talk about not just like the nitty gritty of science, but like the bigger picture of research and healthcare and how that fits into the world and the directions it's going to go in and what we can hope for. So this was fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed getting to know a little about Emma and their research journey so far. Since recording, Emma is now an important member of the UHN 2SLGBTQIA committee, where they're raising awareness for female and non-binary health issues. If you'd like to reach out to them, their Twitter handle and UHN email are posted in the episode description available at the ORT website. There, you'll also find a picture that I took of Emma's corgi, Sophie, who I've had the pleasure of meeting several times now. Apparently she likes me because I'm now known as Auntie Emily. And if you would like to be featured on the Seeds of Science podcast, or if you'd like to get involved in production, please reach out to us. We hope you enjoy getting to know UHN trainees and postdocs throughout the series. Stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks' time. Seeds of Science is proudly supported by the UHN Office of Research Trainees, with special thanks to Drs. Amanda Verry and Linda Penn. Hosting by Dr. Emily Mills and Rima El-Sayed. 
Editing by Ariana Besic and Dr. Leonardo Massignan. Outreach management by Dr. Olivia McHale and Mariam Naimi. Social media by Hilary Milne.